This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong I'm Jacqueline Dobrin, Communications Specialist here at JMU Civic. And I'm Sarah Akers, the Woodson Martin Democracy Fellow here at JMU Civic. Joining us on this episode is Christy Vines, President and CEO of IDEOS. She's joining us to discuss the importance of empathy ahead of the National Day of Dialogue. Thank you so much for joining us, Christy. I wonder if you can start by sharing what brought you to this work. Sure. In, in some ways, it's a little bit uh, serendipi- serendipitous. Um, you know, my background for well over a decade has been in the global conflict space and so, so much, you know, of that period of time was focused on issues of religious conflict, even extremism. And one of the big takeaways, I think, lessons I learned through that experience is that, you know, things happen at this very high level of, you know, political diplomatic engagement and, you know, moderation, but true transformation was happening just across the table with people. Uh, And it was something I noticed that, you know, in these very long periods of time of conversations and uh, negotiations, human beings were sitting down at the table and sharing stories about their families. And so here are these, you know, world leaders and religious leaders who are connecting not on the big issues, but just the very human issues uh, that connected them. And we've seen that throughout history, you know, whether it was Israel, Palestine, and, you know, just parents and family members and, you know, just talking about what it was like for them in this conflict and how that was affecting the people that they cared about. And I think that was just transformational for me. And I didn't realize that it was going to be so applicable in a domestic context uh, until after starting IDEOS and realizing that so many of the markers that we were paying attention to globally were starting to appear here in our own backyard. And so very quickly, the pivot, you know, IDEOS was intent, intended to be more of a global facing organization. And there, the need just really arose here. And I think the call was, uh, was made, kind of was made to take all of this and apply it into this national context uh, that we now find ourselves in. You mentioned that uh, you have traveled the world for over the past decade, and you found that empathy is the solution to the world's greatest conflicts. How do you define empathy and what exactly is empathy and empathetic leadership? Yeah, such an important and good question. Um, I always like to start an answer to a question like this uh, with kind of an ode to Brene Brown, because, you know, she really brought this idea of con- this idea of empathy into kind of contemporary consciousness uh, and really made it a, a new buzzword, even though, you know, certainly it's had its place and its role throughout history. But is in as much as you know, I have deep respect for um, Dr. Brown. Part of my my gut has always told me that it was more about this feeling or this emotional idea that we tend to think of empathy as. Um, I always uh, defer to this idea that a lot of people think of empathy as kind of this emotional warm blanket, um, or that some people are just born with it and other people are don't just just don't have it. But we really define empathy very differently. We define it as a skill and a tool, a strategic way of engaging with people, as well as the big issues um, that we find ourselves engaging with every day. Um, and so 
in and of itself, empathy is teachable. And it's, you know, it's something that can be learned over time. Some people are more inclined based on their backgrounds, their histories, how they, you know, how they grew up. But ultimately, it's something that everybody can can claim for themselves. And then how is it applicable is that, you know, I like to describe empathy as this way of kind of having a, a mono lens into the, the issues or kind of what's before us and how we engage with the world. And so I always use this exercise with a group, and I think it's the best way of describing empathy. And so it's this idea that if everybody became a photographer and they were given this uh, assignment uh, to take a picture of this, you know, the last living tree species of its kind somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, and it had been responsible for the oxygen and the health and the viability of this, you know, of this region for centuries. And so the, as a photographer, you were asked to take a picture of the essence of this tree, to communicate it back home to people who will never get a chance to experience this tree. So you, you know, the majesty and importance of it. And so as photographers, we all biased our camera lenses and took a picture we would all take a picture of that tree very differently. So some would take a picture of the breadth and the height of it. Some would take a picture of the huge gnarled root system or the, the just the width of the bark. Um, some would take a picture of, of just the under canopy. But ultimately, you wouldn't really understand the true essence of the tree until you started to look at all of the pictures together. But all of those pictures still are the tree. None of them are erroneously a tree, none of them are a false tree, but it's somebody's perception of that tree. And that when you layer them all together, you really can understand the true majesty of the tree. And that really is what empathy is. It's taking all of these collective images of issues and things that we all uh, see and experience every day and having the ability to look and see them through the perspectives of not just our own lens, but the lens of others. And that's really what empathy is. Christy, you, you described in this scenario the idea of, of the tree and, and looking at it from different perspectives. And it also strikes me that we're talking about, you know, not just looking at things from a different perspective, but having like the same text, right, or the same experience. Um, but then looking at that experience from different lenses. And I wonder if in your experience, um, and and your study, if we're, we're missing right now the opportunity to have a shared experience like what you talked about in that scenario where we all take the time to look at the tree, um, where we all take the time to reflect and hear each other's perspectives. And what does that mean in terms of our ability to come to an understanding of each other and those different experiences? and different perspectives when we don't have a shared experience or text to work from? That's such an excellent question. And it, I think it really gets to the heart of where we are as a society today. You know, I think technology plays a huge role in that. You know, once upon a time, you didn't have as much of an opportunity to self-select into different groups or ideas or perspectives because as communities, we were all dependent on one another. And so you had to be, you had to do life together, just in some cases, just to survive. It's why I think when you go to very um, you know, indigenous societies, 
you find that there is much more of a natural empathy that emerges because we were they have to rely on each other. Whereas here in in kind of the more developed world, um, we we don't necessarily have to be. Um, we don't have to rely on one another in the same way, or at least we don't think we do. And technology has allowed us to even self-select out of the natural community that we live in. And so I think that is really the, the crux of this is not only do we not have shared language or shared experience, we actually get to select out of even ha- even things that would naturally force us to have a shared experience, um, which is, I think, to our detriment for sure, and is part of the reason why we are so disconnected and so divided is because we don't actually even have an opportunity to have a shared experience or understand somebody else's perspective um, or the story behind it. And that's really why the work that we're doing with dialogue is part of that process. It's something that we have become, you know, has become a, a sorely lacking part of just our everyday experience and the fabric of our society. So with that in mind and with your definition of empathy, what power does empathy hold when it comes to creating opportunities for social and political change? You know, I think that this, you know, this idea of empathy with it, within kind of the definition as, as we define it has incredible power to move us, you know, not only towards each other, but also forward in terms of social change and advances beyond where we are today. I if you look historically, the greatest moments and movements of any society have come through deep and hard conversations and dialogue. And empathy becomes a part of that because we're forced to talk to other people in order to influence them or have these kinds of exchanges that lead us to a greater awareness of the issue itself, but also start to break down those walls and barriers between you know, the people, us and the people that we would assume to be our enemy or who are standing in the way of that progress, or at least, you know, that's often how we perceive it. And so what empathy really does, and, you know, interestingly enough, you know, the idea of empathy and and a, a process that we have kind of adopted of empathy mapping has been perfected by the technology industry and is why technology has advanced so quickly and has become in many ways um, a habitual uh you know, habit that we or or thing that we all have have become addicted to. That was intentional because the technology industry figured out pretty quickly that it didn't make sense for them to build products based on what they needed, but rather what the broader public needed. And so they did very deep. Now, sometimes empathy in this way can be used, you know, for exploitative purposes, but, you know, it can also be used for good. And this is the idea that if you really want to see social change happen, is this and this is where it's applicable to you know activists and, and advocates who are trying to create social change is that social change cannot happen you know with a bulldozer and that real social change it takes the you know it takes those moments of awareness building where you know you have to take the you know the bullhorn and, and shout from the rooftops but when that settles and, and the dust settles from that what empathy does is it allows you to understand what do other people think about this issue? What do they need? Um, what are they looking for? And maybe how you can include them in this conversation by addressing some of that and showing how it's not necessarily a binary choice or an either or, that there is that common ground, there is this common 
um, pursuit and that we can actually create allies out of the people that would be em- enemies. And, and empathy is an incredibly powerful way of doing that. How can we develop and practice empathy skills to get to this point that we're talking about right now where, you know, we we just do it without even thinking about it? Yeah. Um, you know, as somebody who grew up on stories, so I grew up as a prolific reader um, of, uh, you know, largely fiction. And so, you know, they say that people who consume lots of stories or who are avid readers you have the lens of thousands and thousands of characters in your in your mind. And so you you literally have looked at the world through all of these different perspectives. And, and really building the, the tool and the skill of empathy is a lot like that. And so we actually have our, you know, created a very simple framework or model, but it starts with this idea of consuming stories, of being curious about the lived experience and stories of people very different than yourself. And that really is the foundation of it all is this idea of curiosity. Um, You know, proximity plays a huge role in that. And again, unfortunately, technology and many other kind of, you know, modern, uh, modern day changes in society have, you know, removed the proximal aspect of community um, has kind of torn that out. And, but it is important to, to bring that back into the way in which uh, we engage. And so it's, deciding that it's important to be around the people and the ideas and the stories um, that are outside of our own norms, outside of our own experiences. Um, And so that's really how you start to build this whole, you know, the whole skill of empathy. Um, I always say that empathy is inherently inside each and every one of us. It's just become an atrophied muscle. Um, And so practicing it um, is the way that you build that muscle back uh, to full strength. And you know, for someone like me that grew up, you know, I come from a very, very, you know, diverse background. I come from, you know, mixed race uh, grandparents. I come from immigrants. I come from, you know, uh, I have a, you know, my my dad was, you know, his his legacy was was from slavery, and so I grew up with all of these different ideas, perspectives, identities, different political backgrounds, ideas of what kind of social um, norms and values look like faith backgrounds that were different. And this was something that was debated and exchanged and expressed every time the family came together. And so I grew up looking through these very different lenses. And so for me, I think part of the empathy building process is removing the fear of of engaging with people who have different ideas, who maybe even disagree, and rather embracing that as an opportunity to learn and grow and walk away knowing not just more about the issue, but even more about myself. And so that's really a lot of what it is, is it's an intentional decision to really explore difference. So your organization, IDEOS, is leading the efforts to organize a National Day of Dialogue on January 5th, 2022. And the tagline is, America is in desperate need of hard conversations. I wonder if you can talk about how we can go about engaging in these hard conversations and how do we get back lost connections? Yeah, you know, I've thought a lot about kind of where the, this transformation happened, this disconnect happened in society. And I think, unfortunately, it's actually always been there, just in kind of, you know, fits and starts and waves of change. Um, I think that this idea of dialogue and how we get back to kind of having a natural, um, just 
a natural way of embracing hard conversations as opposed to being fearful of them or avoiding them um, is recognizing that they are a natural part of conversation just as much as this idea of influence. You know, when you think about where we are today, we are really good at talking to try to influence somebody so that they can see our perspective. You know, we've now made it this, you know, win-lose process where my only role in communication is to convince somebody or to debate somebody. Um, The process that we actually um, use as an organization and actually used in our uh, documentary film, Dialogue Lab America, which will premiere on, on January 5th for the National Day of Dialogue, actually is this idea that real communication and, and real dialogue only happens we can when we can you know end or at least arrest this idea that we have to de- defend and debate every idea um, and that deep listening is a huge part of that uh, but if you go to almost any course in communication there's so much more emphasis on this idea of you know influence getting your ideas across you know it's very one you know, directional. But what I would say is there needs to be more of an emphasis on the deep listening to understand, um, because only then can real dialogue, real kind of exchange of ideas happen. It doesn't happen when we're not listening. And as a society, we have actually stopped listening to one another. And that happens from, you know, the most basic levels of relationships all the way up to the halls of Congress. Um, I don't think anybody would debate um, or disagree right now that even our most, you know, our highest level political leaders are not doing a lot of listening to one another, um, but they're doing a lot of shouting, a lot of debating, and a lot of defending, which is actually counterproductive to a healthy, flourishing society and certainly a healthy, flourishing democracy. So one thing I would love to know is how do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic affected our ability to communicate and have connections? Wow. You know, I think so much of this will actually be known, you know, when people look back and do lots of research uh, on what happened socially uh, as a result of COVID, in particular COVID lockdowns, where, you know, not only were so many of us kind of locked at home and now completely disconnected uh, with a real inability to have these kinds of exchanges, But I think what it did is it also created an environment of intense fear. And when there's an environment and uncertainty, and whenever there's that time of intense fear and uncertainty, our natural human response, what we are definitely inclined at kind of the basis basis human level is to defend and hold on to what we think of as normal. And I think what COVID has done is so many people are just reaching out and grasping to anything that makes them feel secure, makes them feel stable. And the instability of the unknown, the fear of the unknown, the fear of change has actually become something that rather than embracing, which I think as a society, especially as a, as a diverse democracy um, and, and kind of population as we have, instead of seeing that as something that is positive and affirming to the democracy that we have and the society that we have, we actually now um, see it as a threat. And and I think a lot of that is grounded in that the fear and the of the unknown and the uncertainty that happened as a result of COVID. I also think that um, deep down, um, there when in any moment like this of great transformation, 
that this, again, that desire to hold on to the past and the things that made us feel stable and secure is normal. Uh, and right now, there is nothing normal about what the moment we're in. And I think the other, in some ways, tragedy of COVID is that it happened at the same time that as a country, we were wrestling with incredible cultural and social change. Um, whether that was political issues, whether that was conversations about race, um, diversity, and, and a myriad number of other issues, you know, all of these things came together in kind of a you know a historical you know storm, for lack of a better word, you know. And I, I'm not sure that any of us were prepared for it, and it's going to take a lot of work to dig us out of that. Um, so that again, as a society, we can learn not just to not fear um, and lean into change, which I think is necessary and healthy and is what makes us in many ways unique as a society here in America, but also to rid ourselves of that fear um, of the unknown. So you you just mentioned, you know, helping us get rid of fear. Um, and And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, the the importance of having hard conversations, you know, and whether or not having hard converse conversations alone is enough. Like what, what should come after those hard conversations and what should we expect um, as an outcome from having those hard conversations? Yeah. So, you know, the way that the, kind of the model that we uh, ground our work in is a area called generative dialogue. And it's this idea that dialogue for you know, is different from conversation communication. You know, conversation is often, you know, kind of just a, an exchange of, of, of communication, you know, of, of kind of audio information, auditory information. But dialogue, and especially generative dialogue, is this idea that everything we do, every exchange we have is actually a dialogue. Um, and so, and it's this idea that we should enter into these conversations, especially the hard ones, with this desire to know more and to add to what we already know. So my job in a dialogue is to generate more knowledge, more wisdom, more perspective than I could alone. And so everything is an education. It's a learning experience. Even if I reject the, the information or reject the ideas that the other person is sharing with me, it can be affirming to what I already believe, it, but it could also be something that um, it you know allows me to hone my own perspective. And so it's something to embrace as opposed to reject and run away from. And I think when I you know the question about you know is that enough? No, you know dialogue is really the foundation upon which action uh, really rests. And so, you know, we can either act out of our only our own interests, our own perspective, or we can broaden our own understanding of issues, our own perspective through the process of generative dialogue. And so what I would say is that, you know, any action, especially when we come to activism or advocacy or even just, uh, you know, becoming active as just a normal part of our everyday life, that all of that, when informed by more and more diverse perspectives, actually allows us to be more effective. It, and it allows us to broaden the pool that we that come along with us um, in that movement. And so I believe that any social change is actually 
completely or is hampered by a lack of dialogue. Um, and I think if you look historically at almost any so really big social movement, it never happened through, you know, one group or one, you know, one, I'm trying to think of the, the word, but one group alone moving in isolation. You know, it happened when that group started to connect with other groups who may not have naturally agreed with them, but they started to find common ground. They started to find common language and then they started moving together. Um, and real change doesn't happen until you start to get some of those people who had been in opposition to you to join forces and to, to embrace these new ideas. And that takes dialogue. Um, and that's really the foundation of trust building. Um, and so I think all of these go hand in hand and become the bedrock for real activism, real activity in a way that's productive, efficient, and effective. And to even more importantly, sustainable and long lasting. With having these tough conversations and dialogues, it's easy to feel like you should give up or that your voice doesn't matter. So how can we make sure that our voice is heard and to keep pushing for what we believe in? You know, I, you know, a lot of people ask as a, as an institute that, you know, based on and grounded in empathy, if we take a position, you know, or if we're kind of agnostic on everything. And I say, first of all, that's, it, there's not, that's not possible. Um, you know, we are made up of humans and individuals. And so of course we have a position. Uh, we, we, you know, lean one way or another on the big social issues of the day. Um, but I think this idea of voice being heard, I believe that every single time I'm in dialogue with somebody, the, the greatest kind of the most powerful tool that I have in my toolbox to help my voice be heard is to give somebody a platform and an opportunity to hear theirs. It's, it's so, um, it's amazing how quickly somebody who's very defensive um, can become open when we invite them to share their story with us, their perspective with us. It's, it's a mutual respect and it's, tr it's transformative. And so I think the most powerful way that we can ensure that our voice is being heard is by listening to the voices of somebody else and listening to the voices of others. Again, doesn't mean, you know, empathy does not mean that we have to agree or even approve. Um, but it is an opportunity of mutual respect, of showing dignity to somebody different from us. And again, I think what happens is that natural human reaction of, wow, somebody just listened and heard my story. And that then changes even the way we engage back. Um, and so I think you can do it from the bully pulpit for sure. Um, but if you really want to be heard, because it's one thing to get your voice out in the atmosphere, it's another thing for it to be truly heard um, and considered. And so much of that is just this idea of of a, the, the process of dialogue, of hearing and listening as an opportunity and a platform to then share our own, you know, to get our own voice out there. How can someone, you know, let me, let me step back for a second. So, you know, we know that we are living in, in bubbles in a lot of ways. Um, we have high levels of inequality and self-segregation, whether that's online or even in our communities. Um, how would you advise someone to go about finding alternative perspectives given 
the the self isolation, the self segregation, and the high levels of social and economic inequality that we currently find ourselves. Yeah, I will defer to so many researchers who've been looking at this work for far longer than I have and have far more expertise. So this is not an original idea um, at all. But I think it's an incredibly important one, which is, you know, the first, I think, tool that we have is we've got this huge, you know, network, this internet, this, you know, this encyclopedia, easily accessible encyclopedia of ideas. And so often what we do is our natural proclivity is to immediately go and seek information from the sources that affirm the worldview that we already hold. Um, And that is actually detrimental even to ourselves. Um, And so many researchers and experts would say, seek first the position of the opposition. Do your op research before you then go and try to affirm your own ideas, because it changes the way in which you actually even look at the issue as you would have originally, had you not have done that. And so I think it's an intentional desire to understand different perspectives and to seek them intentionally, sometimes first, um, before we go searching down the rabbit hole of affirming of our own you know, perspective. Um, so I think that's incredibly important. I also think it's incredibly important to intentionally place yourself in communities that naturally would hold diverse perspectives or expose you to diverse perspectives. Um, None of this is going to happen just by chance. Um, You know, either we will choose to live in these vacuous communities of ideas and perspectives and experiences and backgrounds, or we will lean into what I think is really the American heritage of diversity, um, of being surrounded and surrounding ourselves by people of different backgrounds and experiences. I think it's, you know, the legacy of America is the immigrant story mixed with the indigenous story. Um, And that's what makes us unique and special. And I think the minute that we no longer embrace that as a society, which we certainly see happening, it also then becomes the decline of democracy. Um, and, And that I think is my greatest fear is that we are training generations to only seek out information and perspectives that affirm their, you know, their own, rather than recognizing how powerful it is to have and hold and ex- be exposed to these very different and diverse perspectives, especially when it comes to issues of inequality and, you know, h- hatred and, you know, issues of racism, issues of immigration, issues of economic injustice, you know, the many big issues that we're wrestling with, those don't get solved by screaming at each other. You know, they get solved when we recognize that each of us has a role to play. And even those who we would see as opposing our viewpoint or standing in the way of progress might have something to contribute to our own, uh, our own actions and our own pursuits. Um, and that they need to be they need to be a, a part of that. Um, so I think we don't solve those issues as long as we, you know, remain outside of dialogue. Uh, that we don't engage in the hard conversations with people who disagree. And I also think that until we do that, we are only shouting theory. I, I have found so much transformation that happens when somebody's perspective gets explored by somebody else through the story and history that informed that perspective. 
it is, I've watched it break down incredibly powerful and strong walls the minute that story exchange happens. Uh, and it, which goes right back to what I actually um, experienced doing the conflict work that I did uh, many, many years ago. So before our final question, and it is a, an important one, but first I would like to ask you, how can people get involved in National Day of Dialogue? Super easy. You just go to nationaldayofdialogue.com and sign up. Um, you can sign up just to uh, ex- you know, engage in the content that um, our organization and our over 20 plus partners from around the country are putting out that day. And so you get immediate access to the full lineup of events, as well as early access to the screening of our documentary film. Um, so that's super easy. Uh, and beyond that, you can also serve as a host site. So you can bring you know, your friends, your community, family members, colleagues together um, on January 5th or really throughout the month of January and actually ex- engage in the content and then host your own dialogue. Um, and we actually help us and our partners provide tools and resources to actually start, um, allow you to start building your own, um, your own skills and to start rebuilding that atrophied muscle of dialogue. Christy Vines, president and CEO of IDEOS, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. We asked this final question of all of our guests, what would you do to strengthen democracy? Such an important question today. <laughs> um, I think one of the most important things, and it won't come as a surprise given the work that we do, but I think one of the most important things that we can do is to actually teach the skill and the tool of dialogue as a part of our civics and our, you know, our civic engagement uh, education. I think it's incredibly important. It's one thing to hold ideas, but figuring out how do we share and engage with one another on them is incredibly important. And considering the fact that we've lost so much of that as a society rebuilding that into the fabric of future generations as a normal way of engaging in uh, in civic life, I think is incredibly important. And I think at this stage of our nation's history, um, it is vital. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu slash civic. Until next time.